Conference Church uh, for our younger kids uh, because we are going to talk about a little bit of an uncomfortable subject. Uh, We're going to be talking about church discipline and a particular case as it affects the church at Corinth involves uh, a level of gross immorality that I um, thought some of you folks might not want to explain to your children. And so uh, we're going to be talking about talking about this as it relates to, to the, the church in Corinth and as it relates to our church. And I think the reason that the whole topic of church discipline makes a lot of us uncomfortable, uh, you know, is that we are Americans, first of all. And, you know, we are founded as a nation in complete rebellion against duly constituted authority, right? And, um, and on top of that, in our modern context, uh, we think that any kind of discipline is automatically unloving and judgmental. And we have therefore concluded that it can't really be something that God ever wants us to actually do with anybody who might actually need it. And I think related to that is our discomfort with the concept of authority and submission, especially in the context of church. And we might install pastors and elders in the church, but we don't really think, many of us, that pastors and elders are put in the church to shepherd and to lead and to exercise authority in the church, as the Bible says. And more to the point, we often don't believe that we, or that I in particular, as a church member, have to listen to what anyone else says about anything and submit to them. And so this is all very difficult for us. And if anybody actually does try to confront me, especially if I am in sin, well, then I will just find another church to go to where I don't have to be uncomfortable or feel judged. That tends to be our attitude for this whole area. And because of that, a lot of churches have just said, you know, church discipline is something that the Bible talks about, but we're not actually going to do that here because anytime we try to do that, that really makes people uncomfortable. It makes people feel like we're a judgmental group of folks. And besides that, the person who needs discipline is just going to go to a different church anyway where they're not going to be under our discipline. And the reality of it is is that I hope none of us would be so prideful as to decide what we are going to to pick and choose, what we are going to obey out of the Scriptures and what we are not. Because at the root of it, that really is the problem. It is not that what the Scriptures contain is inaccurate or is not from God. It's that we are often too prideful to obey it. And church discipline, just like parental discipline anyway, is meant to be administered for the good of the person to whom it is given. It's not meant to tear that person down. It's meant to build up. It's not meant to uh, be done in a spirit of hatred, but in a spirit of love, that the person might remove serious hindrances to their growth in their relationship with Jesus. You know, I had, uh, last night I had an incident with one of my children, and discipline had to be administered. And after it was, this child looked at me with teary eyes, and I said, I love you, and I 
gave the child a hug, and, and the child looked up at me and said, it doesn't feel like you love me. <laughs> and I understand. I've been on the other side of that equation before. I had a father, and, and, and he would do the same thing with me. He would correct, and I would feel like, oh, he doesn't love me. But, the, but if you're a parent, you understand that while discipline is painful for both parties, it's done for the good and for the maturation and for the separating from evil of the person, right? And church discipline is the same way. It's, for, it's to provide protection not only for that person, but also protection for the community and protection for the gospel that is intended by all, all the, the discipline that we practice. Because here's reality. If you allow sin to spread and grow unchecked in a church, what will happen is that sin is like cancer, and pretty soon it takes over the whole thing. And I could tell you story after story after story of this. The worst one that I know of, I actually know people who went to this church I know kids who grew up in it, and it was a train wreck. It was a church that some friends of mine uh, went to down in the uh, down on the north side of Dallas. And with that church, the pastor was a single man, and he was carrying on immoral relationships with a number of the women in the church, including some of the elders' wives. It was gross immorality and on top of that it was left undisciplined even though it was known to a number of the leadership to be occurring they would have drunken parties at the pastor's house and come to church the next day hung over wearing sunglasses because they couldn't deal with the lights in the church and, when, and I happen to know that the elders and their wives all took a trip to Las Vegas and the women went to shows and the men went to strip clubs. I kid you not, this all happened. I know people who were there. In fact, I know one of the wives who went on the trip to Vegas. It was nasty. And unsurprisingly, the divorce rate in this church was off the charts. Because sin had just been allowed to fester and grow, and it ate the church. And some of the folks that I know, including one of my childhood best friends, is married to a girl who grew up in that church. Her parents got divorced. Her dad was one of the elders who was watching stag movies on the elder retreat with his fellow elders. Can you just imagine what kind of ridiculous immorality that was and what a mess and this was represented as a faithfully bible teaching church and yet sin just exploded and the repercussions i can tell you are still felt by people who were victimized by all that mess to this day there are kids who grew up in that church who have walked away from church, who have walked away from Jesus because they saw all that mess and they want nothing to do with anything related to Jesus or church or any of the people 
that were associated with that. There are kids whose parents got divorced because of the immorality that was allowed to go on who are still wounded over the impact of that sin. And so so discipline, even though it's hard, and I've participated in some of it, even though it's hard, it's often necessary for the protection of the church, for the protection of the people who are within it, for the protection of the person who needs it, and for the protection of the gospel and the reputation of Jesus in the community as a whole. Discipline is protecting, protective and it's loving. It's very often the most loving thing you could do. And so we're going to look over Paul's shoulder here today and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in a case of, of immorality and discipline that needs to occur. And there's some things that we need to see here and some things we need to learn out of this. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 to start with. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, you'll notice something as you look at these verses, you'll notice something immediately. And, and you'll see, first of all, that Paul is not only distressed by this man and his sin, although he's deeply distressed by that, but he's also distressed by the church's reaction to it. Because on the one hand, this man's sin is heinous. He is carrying on a, a, a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Now, this is not his mother. This is, you know, his father's concubine or a second wife. Or, but it's his stepmother, essentially. Now, this is gross. This is nasty sin. This is sin that's not only prohibited, if you read through the book of Leviticus, as I've been doing this last week, uh, I've been doing my Through the Bible in a Year book at a time, and, and I'm in Leviticus this last week, and I read this, the chapter, Leviticus 18, that deals with these kinds of sins. And it says, don't do this, don't carry on this kind of relationship, or that kind, or this kind. And this relationship is specifically mentioned in Leviticus 18.8 as prohibited. And he said, and and... And Moses goes on to say there in Leviticus, don't do this because it's of these kinds of relationships, this kind of sin, that God is driving out the Canaanites out of the land before you and giving it to you. And if you do the kind of sin that they do, God will vomit you out of the land just as he did the Canaanites and you'll go into exile. And guess what happened to the Israelites? They fell into paganism, they practiced this kind of immorality, and they did go into exile. And so, the Old Testament law is very, very clear on this. This is sin. This is not okay. But what is worse is the church's reaction to it, which is that this is no big deal. 
And on top of that, it's not only no big deal, it's something they kind of celebrate. Look at us. We're so tolerant. We're so loving. We're so kind of with it. You know, we kind of fit into the culture. You know, we're, 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 we're not a regular church. We're a cool church. And everybody can kind of let their freak flag fly. As David Crosby says, right? Uh, and this guy has got his flag at full staff. And everybody in the church is okay with it. And Paul says, look. Not even the pagans think this is okay. And yet you're tolerant of it and celebrate it. By the way, does this sound at all like contemporary news? That people in the church are now beginning to celebrate what Scripture condemns and pat themselves on the back for being so tolerant and loving? I'll not elaborate on that, but I'll assure you this is as contemporary as yesterday's newspaper. And the Corinthians are not distressed by it. In fact, they're kind of proud. They're so wise and so advanced in their morality that they go, you know, this kind of outmoded standard rightly belongs in the past because it's outlived its usefulness. And Paul says in verse 2, look at what he says. Ought you not rather... To mourn. Ought you not rather to mourn? Why? Because sin always destroys whatever it touches. Wherever there is sin, it always leads to the destruction of the life of the person and to damage in the lives of every person that it touches. It always destroys. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. And I came that, it might, that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And the thing is with sin is that it's very deceptive. And you think while you are letting your flag fly that you are really enjoying life. But in reality, what you are doing is progressively committing suicide. And Paul says, ought you not rather mourn for this guy? He is destroying his life. He is destroying his life. And rather than be upset over that because you love him, you are cheering him on. Yay, let's watch this guy die. He is going down the path of destruction. And rather than stand in his way and go, whoa, the bridge is out down there, pal. Don't go down there. They're going, have fun. Seems like it's a great time. No. Paul says, weep for this man. He's destroying his life. And he says, you need to... Even in the midst of your mourning, go a step further and remove this man from fellowship. For two reasons. Number one, so that he will understand the seriousness of his sin and be brought to repentance and restoration. 
Because the goal is always restoration and healing. It's not exclusion for the purposes of exclusion. It's exclusion for the purpose of healing and restoration. And also so that the message of the gospel and the fellowship of the body are protected. I want to look at that in more detail. Uh, if you've got your Bible there, verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, in the first few verses there, verse 3 to 5, Paul is indicating his apostolic authority over their church and saying it extends even when he is not physically there. And as an apostle, he had the authority to pronounce judgment on people who were in serious sin, just as Peter did in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. And this is, in other words, a very serious sin that merits a serious response. And Paul is indicating, look, I have already taken this man before the Lord as, the, as his apostle. I am going to deal with this. And he says, look, you as a church need to validate the judgment that I have given when you gather together. And you're to gather together in Jesus' name. And when the believers of the church are gathered, the Lord is present with them. And Paul says, I will be with you in spirit also, because the union of believers includes all believers. We're all part of the same body of Christ. And he says, by the power of Jesus, through the Spirit of God, you're to cast this man out of your fellowship and deliver him to Satan. Now let me clarify what that means. Um, first of all, you have to look at what does it mean about the destruction of his flesh. Uh, does that mean his, his literal flesh, his body, or does that mean his sin nature? I think it means his sinful nature. Often when Paul talks about the flesh, he is talking not about the body, but he's talking about the sinful nature, the part of us which is bent towards sin that we are born with and that we accelerate and participate in. To believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead, is to put to death our flesh. And to uh, tell it, it no longer has power over us. But to participate in sin is to give it mouth to mouth, and give it CPR, bring it back to life, and give it power over us once again. And Paul says, I want you to cast this man out of your fellowship, that his sinful nature, his flesh, might be destroyed but his spirit saved. Because Paul is still holding out hope that this man is in fact a believer and the act of being cut off from the fellowship of the body of Christ would so shock this guy that he would go, man, I need to repent. 
I need to put my sin to death so that I can be restored in my relationship with God. And the idea is, is that the, you know, the idea is too, is that as part of the body of Christ, there's a sense in which you are under the the special protection of God as part of the church. But when you are outside of the church, then you're on your own, and you're like a sheep without a shepherd, and you're out there away from the flock where the wolves are. And and where Satan has free reign over you to do with you as he pleases. And Paul says, withdraw the protection of the church from this man that he might repent. Now, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians later in the year, but you'll see in 2 Corinthians that this man actually does repent. And he does come back to be part of the fellowship of the saints. And so this actually does work. Because the man is restored, and he is healed, and he, he does confess his sin and repent of it. But the other side of this is that the opposite is a possibility, that the guy leaves and he never repents, and he is revealed to be what he is, which is an unbeliever. But Paul is hoping that the guy's sin would be destroyed, that he would be revealed to be a believer, that his spirit might be saved on the day of salvation. But either way, this man has to be put out. And, and the second part of this passage connects church discipline to the Passover. If you look at it here, uh, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here the... The idea is, uh, he's talking about yeast. I'm not a bread baker. My wife bakes. She makes bread. She makes, she made olive uh, oil bread the other day. She makes hoagie rolls and all kinds of fun stuff. We have a great time. Uh, one of the reasons I go to the gym as often as I do is that she bakes. Um, but uh, got 10 miles to run today. So <laughs> in any case... Um, but you only need just little minuscule amounts of yeast. It isn't like, you know, three cups of flour, cup of sugar, three pounds of yeast. You know, no, it's a little bitty tiny amount. And that little bitty tiny amount works through the whole loaf of bread and causes it all to puff up and rise and get fluffy and good and have holes for butter. Right? Uh that is the idea, is that a little bit works through the whole loaf. And this is connected to the Passover in Paul's mind and in the text here, because before the Passover, you were to go through the house and you were to clean out every trace of any kind of leaven that you had, any kind of yeast, any kind of old bread, any kind of you know, sourdough starter that you had, you know, working. Clean it all out. Get rid of it all. Because in the, in the Old Testament, that was a symbol of sin. And so you were getting rid of all of that stuff out of your house so that the Lord, on Passover night, when you made your sacrifice, would pass over your house, would receive your sacrifice, and would pass over you was the idea. 
And, and Paul says Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And if you look at the Old Testament, you know, they sacrificed the Passover lamb at twilight, and they put blood on the door and on the top of the door. And, and then any house that had the blood of the lamb on it was passed over and was not subject to the death of the firstborn, the last of the ten plagues. And on that very night, Moses led the people out toward the promised land. Paul says Jesus is the real Passover lamb to which this Old Testament literal lamb only pointed. Jesus is the true Passover lamb, the spiritual Passover lamb, that when he died at the cross, his blood covers over our life so that God is able to pass over our sin and not punish us with death. Jesus is the true firstborn who died that we might have life, that we might be taken out of slavery to sin and into the promised land in the presence of God. And in other words, this, is, this dealing with discipline is deeply connected to the gospel. Because if you are someone who believes the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life, if you're a person who believes that, then there ought to be a manifested in your life new life. And if you are going back and practicing the kinds of things this man is involved in, then you are not living the new life. Amen? That is a safe assumption. You are not living the new life, and so you need to do what the Israelites did and clean out all of the old junk and get rid of that, not only out of your own personal life, but out of the life of the community as a whole. Because the thing is this, is that we as a body, believe it or not, represent the gospel to the community out there. And that as we are together, as we live as the holy people of God, we are to present the new life that the gospel promises. And to the extent that we make a good representation of that, people might not believe in Jesus, but they look at us and they say, I don't know what a Christian is, but if I ever became one, I'd want to be one like those people. Because those people are living an abundant, holy, joyful life. And I want what they got. But when you allow sin to fester in the church, what happens is this. People say, you know, I I don't know about church. The church is full of hypocrites. To which I always tell them, it is not full. Come on in. (laughs) We got lots of seats. Right. But but my but their point is well taken to the extent that you allow sin to persist among the people of God. You create rejection by people who are not yet part of the community. One of the things that is the biggest barrier to a lot of non-Christians to becoming followers of Jesus is precisely this that there is not that much distinction between those who claim to follow Jesus and those who do not. 
Our teenagers sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend at about the same rate as non-Christian teenagers. Christian people get divorced at approximately one in three marriages, just like non-Christian people. Christians take one another to court, just like non-Christian people. Paul's going to deal with that next week. And people look at us and they go, you know, I don't see a lot of distinction, honestly. And so when they hear us talk about sin, or... or and sexual sin in particular, which seems to be kind of the hot topic du jour right now. They look at us and they go, but look, all of you people are all engaged in all kinds of other varieties. So it must be that you don't have so much of a thing against sin. You just don't like those people and theirs. And it undermines our proclamation of the gospel. undermines our proclamation of the gospel. And so Paul says the most loving thing you can do would be to clean out the old leaven and make a new lump so that you might not be filled with malice and evil, but with sincerity and truth. Amen? And Paul says here, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, are we, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those outside, inside the church whom you are to judge? For God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In other words, there ought to be a distinction between those who claim to follow Jesus and those who make no such claim. Paul makes it clear. Look, you're not to cut yourself off from all, any kind of relationship with people who are out there in the world. And we expect that those who are out in the world are going to be subject to all kinds of sin, right? That's why we believe the gospel, because we believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if that is true, then we expect that non-Christians are going to live like it. That they're going to be immoral, that they're going to be drunkards, that they're going to be swindlers, that they're going to cheat one another, that they're going to lie, that they're going to blaspheme God, that they're going to do all these things, right? We expect that. Our theology teaches us that. Our Bible says that everybody who is born of Adam is prone to that. And so we go, yeah, that's exactly how it should be. But within the church... If you claim to be a believer, then none of those things should be characteristic of you. Amen? None of those things. Because we believe that the God who promises new life actually does grant it. And he says, if you've got somebody in church who claims to be a believer and yet is sexually immoral, don't even eat with that guy. In other words, don't extend 
fellowship to him or to her. Because they are claiming to be a believer, and yet they are not living as one. And so you are to invite them to repent, but you are not to invite them into the fellowship of the people of God. You're to discipline them. And he says, look, God deals with the folks outside the church. You don't need to worry about them. You don't need to go around carrying a sign correcting everybody. It's not your job. But within the church, there is to be a level of correction for serious sin. For unrepentant, serious sin, that person needs to be dealt with. And they need to be dealt with in love and in a spirit of grace, but in a spirit of desiring to see them stop destroying themselves. And say, look, I love you, and I love you too much to let you persist in this. It's enslaving you. It's going to take your life. It's going to take you over. Because one of the things that happens with sin is that initially when we start out doing it, what happens is, is that we're able to do it, but then kind of step back from it and still remain ourselves. But eventually what happens is that sin stops being a behavior and starts becoming an identity. In other words, this becomes who we are. That we're not a person who gossips sometimes. We are a gossip. That we're not a person who is occasionally immoral. We're just immoral. And we even start to identify with it as part of who we are. Well, that's just me. That's just who I am. But what's happened is, is that sin has taken over your life. It has metastasized like cancer throughout your spiritual life. And if it's not cut out, it does take over. And the purpose of church discipline is to do chemotherapy. It's to do radical surgery on both this person and the body of Christ that sin might not be allowed to spread and fester and grow. So, how do we apply this text? Number one, and I, I mean this with all the kindness and love and generosity of spirit that I can muster. We as elders, we as the people of Chillicothe Bible Church are fundamentally committed to doing what the Bible says. And that includes practicing church discipline here at Chillicothe Bible Church. And this is one of the reasons that we have a church covenant, by the way. Everybody who becomes a member here goes through an examination process. We want to make sure that everybody that we allow privilege to vote and to participate in the life of the church in significant ways is actually a believer in Christ. But in addition to that, we have a church covenant which allows us to hold one another accountable to obeying the Scriptures. And our desire is not to go around like the, you know, the morality patrol whacking everybody for their sin. 
But our desire is to be pure as the people of God. And it is only in serious cases that this would be something we would do. But nevertheless, this is something we are committed to because we believe that God is correct in what he says. The God who gave his son also gave his word to us and he intends for us to obey it. And so we're committed to obeying it. And very often, a discipline process, you know, if you follow Matthew chapter 18, doesn't result in the expulsion of the person from the body. That's the last step, not the first one. It starts off with, if you know that your brother is in sin or he has sinned against you, go to him privately, just the two of you. Where it's one-on-one. And you invite and encourage and come alongside your brother and you pray with them and say, look, you know, I can see this has got you by the throat here. Let me help you. And then it becomes two or three with that person. Praying with them, encouraging them, inviting them to repent and turn from their sin. And then finally, it's a final step that comes to the elders and the body of Christ. With that final step of removal, that they might be restored, that their sin might be destroyed, and they might be healed. And we're committed to following that. Because it is the right thing to do. It is the most loving thing to do for that person and for the body of Christ. And secondly, here's the thing. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to flee from sin. We need to flee. Sometimes we treat sin as if it's just not that serious. Like it's just not that big a deal. And well, everybody does it. And, you know, it's really, you know, kind of common and, you know, fairly acceptable among my friends in the wider culture. You know, I know other people at church who are doing the same thing, whatever. But we need to flee. The Bible says flee. You know what the difference is between a lamb and a pig? I mean, other than the obvious physical appearance differences, the big difference is this. That when a lamb falls in the mud, it gets up and shakes itself off. When a pig falls in the mud, he wallows in it. And if you are a lamb, you're not to wallow, you're to flee. Because the gospel matters. And the public testimony of the church, what aroma is given off by the body of Christ in a place, matters. And the holiness of God matters. And obedience to the word matters. And we want to stand before God and hear him say, well done. Good and faithful servant, come enjoy your master's happiness. And that will matter more than anything else. So flee from sin. Flee. You might have the freedom of the people of God. I can tell you this, that God's word is true. God's word is absolutely true. 
in one of the Psalms, I'm trying to remember which one, I think it's in the 30s. Paul, uh, David writes this, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, your hand was heavy on me all night long, and my bones melted. And I know that is true. I know that is true. I have never felt so oppressed than when I was deeply enmeshed in sin. And I have never felt such freedom and joy as when I cast it aside. Amen? God's word is absolutely true. And he loves us. And he is not trying to prevent us from having fun. Or enjoying ourselves. It is because he has a great deal more joy to give us. Which we can only experience if we will turn loose of this stuff. That has gotten hold of us and that we grasp onto so tightly. Amen. Let's pray and then let's take communion. God our Heavenly Father. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the freedom that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, filled by the Holy Spirit of God and adopted by the Father as children. The freedom and joy that we have to cast our sin aside and to not let us let it torment us anymore. And Father, we thank you for your instruction to the church body. That where sin gets a hold of one of us to such a degree that we cannot by ourselves turn loose of it. That you command us, Father, to remove that person from the body, not because we hate them, but because we love them. And because we want to see their sin destroyed and their life saved. Father, we pray that the gospel would go out strongly from this place because we are people who are living the new life the gospel promises. And that we might cleanse out the old leaven from our hearts and celebrate the festival rightly with purity and holiness and sincerity and truth. That there would be no hypocrisy among these, your people. That none of us would speak from behind a mask but that we would have lives that match the profession we make. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Communion Sunday. And it's interesting here that Paul does tie this whole passage back to the gospel, back to Passover and the idea of being set free from sin and covered by the blood of the Lamb. That we might not be subject to death. But that our sin might be passed over. And we might be brought into freedom. With the people of God. Because certainly that is my desire. And I hope it is yours. That you would not be enslaved anymore. But would that your sin would be covered. That. Death would pass over you and you would be brought into freedom into the presence of God with the people of God. And part of celebrating communion is that celebration. 
It is celebrating what Jesus Christ has done for us in his death. That in his death, he put paid across all of my sins. That all of the punishment that I deserved, every bit of it, every sin I ever have committed, every sin I ever will commit, and I've done some doozies. I've done some things that if I had to admit them here, you would not let me be your pastor. And if you admitted all your stuff, I wouldn't let you be a member. And here's the reality. We're all guilty. Amen. We all have lots of stuff in our life of which we are justifiably ashamed. And yet Jesus Christ in his death paid for that. That we would not have to be ashamed, but could come boldly before God and receive grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and adoption as his sons. And have an inheritance right along with Jesus in the kingdom of God. If you ever find a message better than that, you need to tell me what it is. Because this is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. Let's look at the word here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You guys would stand. We'll pass out the bread. And then we'll wait until everyone has been served and we'll participate together. Precious. 